This podcast is sponsored by valleygivesback.org. Love your local nonprofits and build a better community with a gift that costs nothing today. Name a Valley nonprofit in your estate plan and create a legacy that tells future generations what matter to you. With the plan gift, you have the power to impact the Valley forever without affecting your current lifestyle. Your action will inspire others to make a difference in their own way. Remember the Valley. Ask your accountant, financial planner, or attorney about plan giving options. Plan now. Give later, impact tomorrow. Learn more at valleygivesback.org. Hey, everybody, I'm Eugene Driscoll. Welcome to Naval Gazing, the Valley Indie Podcast. You know, the Oscars are coming up, the Academy Awards. The nominations for the 2019 Academy Awards are scheduled to be announced Monday, January 13th. This year's ceremony is scheduled for Sunday, February 9th. A lot to keep track of. Every year, film critic and former CT Post writer Joe Myers hosts a series of Oscar discussions leading up to, you guessed it, Oscar night. Joe is my guest on this week's episode of Naval Gazing the Valley Indie Podcast, my first episode of 2020, by the way. Happy New Year. In this episode, we talk about Joe's library discussions, the state of movies, and the state of film criticism in 2020. The Oscar night discussions, by the way, will be taking place. First one's at Derby Public Library, 6.30 p.m., Monday, January 13th. You got to register, so visit derbypubliclibrary.org to do so. Second session is at Plum Memorial Library in Shelton. That is 6.30 p.m. Wednesday, January 22nd. Go to sheltonlibrarysystem.org for more info and, yes, to register. And the final Oscar night discussion is taking place at Trumbull Library, 6.30 p.m. January 30th. Go to trumbullct-library.org for more information. One other thing I wanted to mention after I talked to Joe on Friday... Friday morning. I'm, I'm now recording this part of the podcast, January 5th, but the uh, it's Sunday. The actual interview was Friday morning, but I forgot to ask him. He's got a podcast coming up. You know, you can't really read reviews from your local film critic in your daily newspaper anymore, which I think is unfortunate. So I, I, I'm a guy who, like, I just love movie reviews. I love a well-crafted, well-reasoned, funny movie review. And local guys doing that always had a better voice, in my opinion, than, say, like the Associated Press, uh, you know, a type of writing that's designed to go everywhere. But now a lot of the film critics who used to work in newspapers have been moving to podcasts. And I think that's great. And Joe has one coming up, a new podcast coming up. I think in January it's going to be released. It's him and a friend, and it's called Now a Major Motion Picture. It's about books that have been turned into movies. He and his co-host will have authors on to discuss the good, bad, and ugly when it comes to literary adaptations. So keep an ear out for that wherever you get your podcasts from. And just one last note before I start the interview. At valleyindy.org, the website, 
on the link list on the left-hand side if you're accessing the site through a desktop computer. Oh, I don't even know if anyone does that anymore, but I do. I have a list. I've started a list of CT, Connecticut-based podcasts. And so if you have a podcast out there and it's legal and you talk about legal things, drop me a line and I'll include it. Uh, I think podcasts are great. I think it's true independent media and a great way to hear new and fresh voices. All right. I'm going to shut up now. Here is Joe Myers. Thank you. Hey, Eugene. Hey, Joe. How's it going? I'm doing well. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Uh, it's nice to make your acquaintance. I, I, I've been admiring you from afar through your Facebook uh, page for a oh, while thank now. You. But I don't, we've, I don't think we've ever actually met in person. You know, My wife worked at the Post for a while, but I don't think we've... We've ever met. I don't think we have either, but yeah. my memory is not what it used to be. <laughs> yeah, and neither <laughs> is mine, especially having a, after a week or two off. My kids went back to school today, but like I have mentally checked out, you know. So I thought we would take a few minutes today. Joe has upcoming appearances in Derby and Shelton uh, at the libraries in both communities for uh, what's being billed as an Oscar talk. So. First, Joe, if uh, I'm a member of the public and I want to attend one of these events, what's the format? How's it run, and what will happen? It's it's very informal. I'm also doing one in Trumbull, which is where it really all started. The, Trumbull asked me many years ago if I'd be willing to do this, and I, you know, I, I love libraries, so I said sure. And what we basically do is get together. I sort of talk a little bit about the history of the Oscars, my thoughts on the Oscars. And then what's fun for me is hearing, you know, what people liked during the last year, what they didn't like, you know, who they think should win Oscars, who shouldn't. You know, the interesting thing to me about Oscars is even people who don't necessarily keep up with movies are, are still interested in it. You know, it sort of has a cultural hold over all of us. I think we all grew up watching it, reading about it. And, and I, I honestly, I went through a period in college where I thought the Oscars were just absurd, you know, and not mm -hmm. even worth thinking about. But somehow they've come back to sort of cultural importance. And even, even if you think, you know, they're giving them to the wrong movies, it's an important part of the movie scene every year. You know, it shines a light on good movies, serious movies, you know, and I was talking to somebody the other day where I said, you know, the bottom line is if we didn't have the Oscars, I don't know that Hollywood would produce any serious movies for adults because there's a press, you know, there's a prestige element where they want awards. So every year at the end of the year, we get this wave of serious, well-intentioned movies that are basically designed just to win Oscars. So I think if you eliminated the Oscars, the movie-going uh, scene would be really dire. And uh, that's you just raised a bunch of interesting points. I mean, I, I'm a movie fan, uh, and I find it, and this is me projecting, and maybe, you know, it's the beginning of the year, I've had a, a week or two off, I'm a little exhausted, uh, kids yeah. are back to school today, but I find the state of the movie industry, or maybe the, the state of movie culture, or maybe specifically mm -hmm. film Twitter, uh, a little yep. bit depressing. I mean, my Twitter feed is full of people who are complaining that The Irishman was too long, Once Upon a I Time know. in Hollywood was too long, but they'll yes. sit through three hours of a superhero movie. And yes. it's just... Or a, football, or a football game that lasts four hours. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's, it's, I've never understood that. To me, it's more for your money. You know, come on. Yeah, and it, plus, it, I... 
I, I, my sort of childhood in the 60s, you know, when I was like 12, 13 years old, was was about seeing reserve seat roadshow movies like Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, The Sound of Music, all of which were three hours long or longer. You know, so I don't I don't understand that thing with the Irishman. Maybe it's a commentary on our decreasing attention spans. But to me. There's been a zillion, you know, and the, one of the most beloved movies of all time, Gone with the Wind, is longer than The Irishman. So, you know, I don't get it. Yeah, and, and so is that something new, or is this something that's always, you know, there's always been someone who's going to complain about a length of a movie, but now we have social media, and now it's just thrown in our faces all the time. Are we getting uh, sort of a attention deficit disorder as a society, you think, as a film-going public? Well, the, the, the one of the things that interests me is the minute you start watching movies at home, it's a different experience because you can shut it off at any point and go to the bathroom, you know, or go get some food mm-hmm. or take a phone call, whatever. So you're not as focused on a movie as you are in the theater, you know, where you're forced to pay attention to it. And sure, you could take a bathroom break if you wanted to, but I think then you'd fear you'd miss something. So I think the minute you have the control of watching a movie in your house, the whole thing changes. You know, like I said, when I was a kid, and I saw Lawrence of Arabia, you know, it was so spectacular, so powerful that I, you know, I didn't think at all about how long it was. You know, I think I was taken to it by some of my relatives. I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old. And it just blew my mind. You know, it was like it transported me to another time and another place. So I don't get the thing about the length of, you know, and the other thing about the length of movies is I have friends who recently, you know, binged the second season of You on Netflix, which is 10 hours, <laughs> and many of them watched it five hours at a time. Yeah, that's the other thing. We're all, it's all, television is now, everything is, uh, is you know, giant story arcs, and I mean, you know, yep. Game of Thrones was on, yep. The Walking Dead has been yep. on for like 30 years somehow telling yep. the same story, yep. and yet people complain yep. about uh, a new Martin Scorsese movie being a little over, or being three hours long. It is a, it is sort of strange times uh, we're living in, I guess. Well, uh, the, the other thing, Eugene, with something like The Irishman is, if a movie is in a theater, you know, people kind of make the decision, I'm going to go see The Irishman. When it's every, when it's readily available on Netflix, a lot of people who really aren't interested in the subject matter or the actors or anything about it sit down to watch it. And now that we have Twitter, they all feel, you know, free to uh, you know, diss it. And so I think you're getting you're getting an audience that wouldn't like the movie under any circumstances complaining about it for various reasons. So to me, I take that with a big grain of salt. These are people that wouldn't like the movie under any circumstances. And I guess and I'm skipping around a lot and I apologize, but I'm talking to an actual no film critic. You know, I think I grew up, you know, in in, uh, in Somers, New York, uh, you know, uh, an hour outside the city. And, and in my house, right. you know, my, my parents moved up there from the Bronx. My father was a police officer when I was real little uh, in the yep. city. And so we would have the Daily News, you know, the New York Post every day, the Journal News, which yep. was our daily paper, uh, originally the Reporter Dispatch part and, you know, Gannett. Uh, chain and so I would read Marshall Fine in the Reporter Dispatch. Right, I read, yes, yeah, yes, he, he was yes. he was the film critic. I would read the Daily. Yes. You know, I, I would I loved reading uh, uh, f- movie reviews. And yep. uh, what's your take? And then I once I moved to Connecticut, I discovered you at the Connecticut Post. What's your take oh. on the state of uh, current 
film criticism, and uh, I'm really asking this question so I can blurt out my own answer. But I—that's another thing I find depressing. Uh, you know, if you now if you're a movie critic and you don't like a, a movie, and like Rotten Tomatoes is is going against yes. you, you get attacked. Uh, and so I think there's yes. a pressure to like everything because yes. the fanboys are so, for lack of a better word, are so powerful. So what's your take on the state of film criticism as somebody who actually did the job? Well, you know, let's quote Dickens. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. I mean, you know, a lot of outlets have dried up. You know, when I when I started reviewing movies in the 80s, I would go to these screenings in New York, you know, there where they would be packed. And, you know, every daily newspaper, it seems to me, you know, whether it was Syracuse or Virginia Beach, uh, had a film critic, you know, and that situation has changed entirely, you know, uh, I stopped doing it because um, they wanted me to do other things, which were great, you know, and honestly, I got kind of burned out on doing it. I, I really think movie reviews are something you should probably only do for a few years at a time because it really wears you down. Oh, that's but, interesting. You know, In what way, Joe? Let me interrupt you. How does, like, what is, how does that uh, manifest itself? How did you feel that you, like, what had happened that made you feel like you were burned out? Well, you know, that's a little complicated too, but you know, there, there came a time where children's movies moved into the center of movie culture, you know, thanks to Disney, the Lion King, uh, you know, beauty and the beast. And, and, and then you had a wave of pictures that were designed really for families or kids. And I got to tell you, I reached a point where I thought, why am I as an adult with no children writing about movies that are designed for children and families. You know what I mean? I, I, it just, it seemed a little phony to me. And I remember there, there came a point, I think it was the second or third Shrek movie <laughs> where I was, where I was just like, I shouldn't really even be writing about this. You know what I mean? It's kind of ridiculous. So, you know, when, when I was young, you know, and I was reviewing for the college paper and uh, moved on to Delaware it was a different kind of a movie culture. There were more mainstream movies that were designed for adults. There were more mainstream movies that had content that were worth talking about. Like, for instance, Chinatown was a summer movie in 1974. McCabe and Mrs. Miller was a summer movie in 1971. You don't have that much anymore. So you could pick and choose back in those days and let, you know, the Disney movies, like the world's greatest athlete or whatever of that period, just go. You know, you didn't have to bother with it. Once those movies moved to the center and multiplexes focused on them so intently, you had editors and other people involved in the newspaper business who felt those that had to be written about because that was the big movie of the weekend. Hmm. And so, so I found like, you know, I'll never forget an editor you know, who didn't know much about movies insisted that we run the, the review of that horrible Godzilla remake with Matthew Broderick back oh. in the 90s on, on page one because it was getting so much attention because they were spending so much money promoting it. And I just thought, you know, this was really bad to put a movie like that on page one when there were foreign films, independent films of that time that could use the exposure, you know what I mean? And you can right. guide people towards them. So, 
So that kind of got under my skin after a while. And honestly, when they kind of called me and said, we, we really can't have you just writing about movies because the staff is getting smaller, et cetera, et cetera. I was ready to go. You know, and I still, I kept, I kept my hand in with blogging and with occasional features, but I would not want to be a regular reviewer right now, you know, and spend the summer trying to share my thoughts on Avengers movies and Thor and Disney cartoons. Jumanji too. Yeah. I mean, I have two young kids. I have two young kids and I sort of feel the same way because I'm forced to see some of these movies and I'm just, oh, oh, you know, how many, how many Kevin Hart rock movies can I watch or Fast and the Furious 19? They are sort of of deadening. But I remember growing up, I'm 45, right? So uh, growing up uh, in like Westchester County, New York, you know, or I could go into the city when I was a bit older to see, uh, you know, either movies that were being re-released, some of the classics or you know movies that weren't getting a huge release you could seek them out i even worked at a movie theater for a while that was like that uh you know an old-fashioned two-screen theater but where do you as a as a guy who who really loves movies where do you go now to seek out uh where are those theaters now if you want to see something that's not uh you know avengers MacGuffin, whatever (laughs) well we're really lucky in this area on two different fronts we have theaters like the Avon Theater in Stamford, you know, which is really devoted to independent film, foreign films. So, I mean, they don't get everything. And I, I know the guy there who programs it, Adam Birnbaum, a great guy. But he knows that there are some obscure films that his audience simply won't go to see. But you can hop on Metro North, go into New York, go to Film Forum, go to Metrograph, go to the IFC Center. And it's like an ongoing movie festival. So we are we are really lucky geographically to have access to all those films. Because if you lived out in the middle of nowhere and you only had one multiplex that was a you know five minute drive from your house, you're never gonna see Parasite, for instance. Mm. You know what I mean? So so it, it the, these big Disney movies have just taken over the multiplexes in many ways for big chunks of the year. Whereas, like I said, when I was in my twenties in the seventies, you know, great films like network and all the president's men and, you know, were were mainstream movies that were playing at your local movie theater. Right. And now they'd be released digital only or direct to Netflix. It seems right. Or yes. Like, you know, Spotlight is, let's say, let's talk about Spotlight a few years ago, which was sort of in the vein of all the President's Men and Network, you know, got a limited theatrical release. It did play around here in multiplexes, but briefly, and then people watched it at home. But Mm -hmm. back in the day, what was great was something like Chinatown, you know, was playing in theaters. So everybody was talking about it. So you had a really interesting level of discussion about movies in those days because there were great movies to talk about, you know, and and I want to say like this year has been, has been unusual in that in the middle of the summer, we had a classic film open, which is once upon a time in Hollywood. And it was distributed by Sony. That was really unusual. That doesn't happen very often. I think one of the reasons why, why people went ape over that movie was it was everywhere and everybody was talking about it. That doesn't happen anymore with an adult film. And it had very complicated subject matter. It had sociological interest. It had historical interest. 
and people went crazy for it for good reasons, you know, and I and mean, it made I money. Happened. It made money, which is and it made it was a big commercial film because Tarantino got two major stars to star in it. You know, it was widely distributed. That just doesn't happen very much anymore. When you talk about the Irishman, you know, I was lucky to see it when Netflix booked the Belasco Broadway Theater for a month to show it theatrically to qualify for awards. You know, so it was fabulous to see that in you know Great Old Broadway House with a packed house of people who are really interested. Hmm. But 99.9% of the people who see The Irishman are going to see it at home alone. And, right. you know, so so the, the talk about movies has changed because everybody is basically seeing something different. You know, your friends telling you about these streaming shows, you know, which I haven't seen, which I may never see. And so the, the, the culture is really divided that way. Whereas back in the 60s and 70s, when something like Bonnie and Clyde came out, everybody saw it and talked about it. And, and, and speaking of divides, I mean, one thing that seems to happen now with every major uh, motion picture, there's always some type of uh, a backlash, uh, you know, whether you agree with it or not, about uh, yes. you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, not enough uh, yep. speaking time for the major female character. The latest <laughs> yes. Star Wars movie, the same thing is being said about one yes. of the characters. Are, uh, like, Do you find, is it more divisive now uh, than it was in the 60s? I mean, so you lived and, and you came up, the Vietnam War was happening. Obviously, uh, you know, the 60s were and early 70s were a divisive time, Watergate and all those things. Yes. Was that reflected yes. in the movie culture? Was it, or, or is, is it more dif- divisive right now, because I'm amazed at how uh, heated and angry people get at movies. Well, I think the movies in general are so bland now, you know, and so much geared for kids or young men under the age of 20, that when a movie comes along that takes a chance, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or The Irishman, it angers people because they're not used to it, whereas... Back in the day, you know, when I was coming of age in college and the years after college, you know, you, your mind was constantly being blown by a commercial films. I'll never forget the spring of 1968 going with friends to downtown Philadelphia to see 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hmm. This was an MGM movie, expensive movie by a major director who took tremendous chances, you know, and people were crazed about it. You know, some people thought it was ridiculous. Other people, you know, thought it was great. But you don't have big Hollywood studios making a movie like that designed for a mass audience anymore. You know, so it, it's a whole different ballgame. And how about in it's terms basic, of... I'm sorry, go ahead. I mean, the other, the other thing that you cannot underestimate is back in those days, the movies were designed primarily to play off in the United States, maybe England, maybe Canada. Right. Once, once China became a major movie market, despite its dictatorship and censorship and everything else, Disney and all these companies moved. I, I just read, I think there are 8,000 screens in China. You know, they love IMAX. They love 3D. So then you had a big... Um, there was a pressure to make movies that could be easily understood by cultures all over the world. In other words, very simple stories. Yeah, I've read this too. It's fascinating that the Marvel, the Marvel movies, where you don't necessarily yeah. need dialogue to understand what's no, happening. No, you don't have to. You don't have to. It's all visual. It's all action. 
Whereas way back in the day, you know, with someone like Robert Altman, there was no way in the world a movie like Nashville or The Long Goodbye or McCabe and Mrs. Miller would play to working class audiences in China. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it just is a non-starter because they have no interest in the culture of the United States. That's so fascinating. And, and all right, so getting you know, back so, to so that, that was a big, the international scene is a huge change that I don't think enough people talk about that. You know, a lot of times they'll say a movie is a flop because it didn't do so well here, like Pacific Rim, for instance, right. it was a blockbuster everywhere else. It made That's a why billion made a dollars. Scene. Yeah. It and was that... a blockbuster. All right, how about in terms of uh, the Oscar talk that you have coming up at the uh, Trumbull, Shelton, and Derby libraries uh, in January? Um, yep. What I mean, obviously, I didn't miss it. They haven't announced the Oscar uh, nominations yet. The Golden Globes are coming right up. But um, who do you, what do you think is going to get nominated for, say, Best Picture? Or if you don't want to talk about that, what, what, was, what were some of the be- what do you think the best uh, movie of 2019 well, was? Well, I think two of the movies we've just talked about, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Irishman, We'll get a ton of nominations, you know, because people like them. They're they're made by major directors, you know. In both cases, they're major directors working at the top of their game. You know, uh, I mean, The Irishman had a tremendous comeback by Joe Pesci, you know, after years of not working. So I think those two movies are going to be very dominant, you know, and um, with good reason. And the, the interesting thing to me in terms of things not being so bad is the Korean film Parasite by this great director, Bong Joon-ho, you know, who, who made things like The Host and Snowpiercer. Parasite, somehow, because it deals with class issues that are relevant all over the world, Parasite has become a major box office hit in this country. Mm. I live a few blocks from the uh, Fairfield Cinemas at Bullard Square. It played there for five or six weeks a Korean language film with English subtitles. You know, that's almost unheard of. So that to me is a very positive thing. And they're from reading, you know, various speculations. There are people who think Bong Joon-ho could possibly be the best director because it's a unanimously loved picture. It's made money, which Hollywood always respects. You know, it's not some obscure thing that no one saw. So I think that's going to be an interesting element. You know, it's going to be one of those rare uh, foreign language films that will probably be nominated both as Best Picture and as Best Foreign Language Film, which has only happened a handful of times. That's interesting. What was your favorite movie of 2019? For me, it stood head and shoulders above everything else once upon a time in Hollywood. I agree. That's, I just, is such a I just thought it. I thought it was an instant classic, and, you know, it was... One of the few movies I went back to the theater to see a second time in a theater, which I hardly ever do because I always feel like I want to see something new. And it was just as good, if not better, the second time. So, I mean, I think this film is a movie that people are going to be talking about for years to come. And I think it's far and away the best thing Tarantino has ever done. You know, it it has an emotion to it. It has a, a, a... just a, a, a sentimental feeling in places that he's never really dealt with in movies, you know, and it has two of our greatest film stars in what may be their best performances. And, you know, what, what tickled me was the film is set in 1969. And I thought, you know, in a way 
this is an homage to the buddy movies of that period. You know, there was a whole rash of, of films like Butch Cassidy with Paul Newman and, and Redford in that year, you know, and this is in that vein, you know, it's about male friendship, camaraderie. And I mean, both of those guys are fantastic. They really are good. I mean, I, I saw that uh, in the theater. Like, I don't get to the theater much, but that was one I, right. I, I, I made it a point. I saw yep. it by myself, angered my wife because I had basically taken a day off from work. <laughs> I think she might have oh been boy. away. Oh and boy. I'm like, I'm oh at the boy. movies. <laughs> but uh, it, the first 30 minutes, I was like, all right, where is this going? I was a little like, all yep. right, come on. To, you know, I, I was like a Reservoir Dogs, you know, Blood and Guts Tarantino sure. fan. Sure, but fiction. I lost myself in that scene where DiCaprio is, uh, you know, do, he, he, he forgets his line. He, he is uh, with the yes. t- Timothy Oliphant, I think his name is, from Justified yes. and, and Deadwood. Yes. And I had Wonderful. forgot what I was watching. When he says line, I had, I had just literally lost myself. I forgot that I was, oh, yeah, this is a, a, a TV show within a movie. And well, I talk about great it, acting. It, I mean, DiCaprio, uh, who I'm usually not a fan of, just right. knocks it out of the park. Oh, he, he was stunning, you know. And the thing about that movie that I loved is there's so many things it's about, you know, among other things. It's also about the terrible situation the actors find themselves in in middle age, you know, when the roles start to dry up and they're not sure where their career is going to go. And that was true then, it's true now. And so that's really poignant, you know, and the pit character, the stuntman driver, you know, depends on the other actor for his livelihood. So I have actor friends who felt it was one of the most moving portraits of, of the challenges of being an actor that they've ever seen. So beyond the Sharon Tate, beyond the historical aspect, it's a great portrait of what it's like to be an actor in Hollywood. And just if you love movies, I don't see how you can not like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because on the, on another level, it's Tarantino's love of cinema. It's really his most oh, personal. It's his art movie, essentially. Absolutely, I think. And you know. And for those of us who were adults at the time, you know, the, the nostalgia chords he strikes in very subtle ways with movies that we have forgotten about. You know, like when they're driving down Hollywood Boulevard and you see on the marquee the night they raided Minsky's. You know, that's a movie I saw at the time. Thought it was okay, but no one has thought about it in 50 years. You know, but he he didn't have the marquee with Easy Rider, Butch Cassidy, the hits. He really wanted to dive into the everyday movies. You know that were and when when the Sharon Tate character goes to the theater to see her film. And the trailer comes on for CC and Company, the Joe Namath and Margaret movie. I flipped <laughs> because I, you know, it's one of the worst movies ever made. And I saw it at the time, you know, and I had not thought about that movie for 50 years. So, I mean, he did a lot of things with reminding us that Hollywood isn't all about the classics and the great films. You know, there's the everyday movie. And I mean, one of the wonderful things about that scene is seeing how delighted Sharon Tate is by yeah. what she did in a really bad movie, The Wrecking Crew, you know, but, but it gives it gives a respect to those everyday movies that, you know, are never going to win Oscars, but that fill up a lot of our lives. Right, yeah, movies, yeah, it's a personal thing. Movies, uh, you know, totally. you, might, you might not like a movie when you first see it as a kid or you see it in your 20s, but then there's that nostalgia Absolutely. factor, you see it again. I mean, that's half of the, the movies from the 80s for me. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess, yeah, you know, Pretty in Pink was a good movie, all right? I'll admit it Yeah. 
you know, and the thing, you know, I was so annoyed when people were doing line counting on the Sharon Tate character. And I thought, yeah. holy smoke, don't you realize that a lot of acting is not about spouting dialogue? It's about looking at someone's face. Yeah, it, you know what I mean? Film's I mean, a visual medium. It's... You could criticize Ingmar Bergman and his relationship with Liv Ullman, you know, who had these incredible tight close-ups where you just studied her face. It wasn't always about her talking. So to me, that was a, it really uh, diminished what, what Margot Robbie did in that film, which was become Sharon Tate. I agree 100%. I did not really understand uh, that controversy, and I thought she I was thought just magnificent. Was she was great. I mean, it's one of the best performances in, in, in decades. Uh, yes. I, anyway. So, oh, and, you know, you know what? It also, the, film also, the film also does such a wonderful thing for the legacy of Sharon Tate, you know, who has for 50 years been thought of largely as a woman who was in Valley of the Dolls and who was brutally murdered. Right. This movie takes us back to the excitement she felt for her new career, the excitement Hollywood had for her as a starlet. You know what I mean? So it sort of reclaims an actress who had been tossed aside decades ago. I agree uh, 100%. Uh, as you know, as uh, somebody uh, who's 45, the only thing I really knew about Sharon Tate was that, yes, she was killed by the Manson yep. family. And this, yeah, yep. it takes back uh, that assumption. How about, Joe, to wrap this up? And uh, yep. I, 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 I don't know. Sometimes critics don't like to talk uh, negative things, but what was the worst movie you watched in 2019? Or the, oh, although I guess now that you're you're not in the daily grind, you you don't have to go see. Uh... Well, yes. One of the great things about not being a regular reviewer is I can show some you know discretion and just avoid films. So honestly, <laughs> to me, it's been a wonderful year because I've seen stuff like Ford versus Ferrari. I just saw a couple of weeks ago Shia LaBeouf's movie Honey Boy, which is an extraordinary achievement by him, you know, kind of one of Hollywood's bad boys, very troubled young actor who came through with an autobiographical film he wrote and plays his own father. And, you know, so, so there was constantly stuff I was seeing that I thought was just pretty amazing. You know, mm. a, a movie that blew me away that I don't think got as much attention as it deserved in the summer was Midsummer, the Ari Aster movie. Oh, right. I, I think it's an extraordinary film. And again, Florence Pugh should be nominated for that performance. She was incredible in that movie. You know, she's now in Little Women and getting a lot of Oscar buzz. But my God, what she did in Midsummer was amazing. And that's a, I think that's a borderline great movie. You know, it takes the horror genre and does something very different with it. She is very good. I couldn't imagine anybody else pulling off that part. Uh, there's just something that she brings in her delivery really pulls you in and makes that movie completely believable, even though it's it, it, the circumstances of what's happening is, is extraordinary. But Well, as a friend of mine that I saw it with pointed out, he said the key to that movie is the way Ari Aster spends the first 15 or 20 minutes exploring her bad relationship with her boyfriend, you know what I mean, and, and her dealing with the death of her parents and you get so caught up in this young woman's life as a real young woman with problems that when she goes off to Sweden, you're all, you're very invested in her as a character. You know, most horror movies would have started with them in Sweden, 
you know, the hostile movies. Yeah. Would have, you know, you, you start with these kids getting brutalized, you know, in Europe or whatever. The thing that Ari Aster believes, and he did the same thing in that movie, I think it was called Hereditary with Tony Collette, where he really gets you involved with the character before the horror begins. Freaking Swedish pagans, day. man. You got to watch those Swedish pagans, though. I, that's my life motto. And the thing about that movie, too, that was so incredible to me was it was so daring in a sexual way in terms of, you know, the, the boyfriend and what happens to him with the Swedish maidens stuff. It's it's. Oh, yeah, that was the craziest very, scene. I've, I forgot about isn't that. Isn't that one of the craziest scenes you've ever <laughs> seen? You know, something very few Hollywood mainstream films would have gone near and Aster is, you know, plunging right into it, no pun intended. And that's a movie I think people, again, will be talking about for a long time. So, all right. So what about The Fanatic? John Travolta's The Fanatic. Did you happen to see that? I'm just, I want you I to see that. I did not see that. What all was right, it? it's the worst was movie of the year. He, I feel so bad for him. I, I never saw it, but I guess last year people said that Gotti movie was one of the worst movies ever made. I think... Fanatic beats it. It's worth. Fanatic is like uh, I think it's the best horror movie of the year and and the worst. It somehow is both. <laughs> I've just it's I I just I words can't to, describe it. You you should you should check. It I, out. I will yeah. check that out. You know, there's there's something to be said for a movie that's so bad you can't believe what you're watching. It's a good one to watch with buddies. So, all right, Joe Myers, I want to thank you uh, so much for coming on and, and talking movies. Uh, with me, we're probably leaving a lot on the table, but I mean, I I, I uh, appreciate the fact that oh. I'm able to talk to an actual uh, a film critic because I I respect uh, film criticism because you know to be a film critic, it's not just uh, you know I have a, another podcast where I just spout out my movie reviews, I, but you have to be a right, writer, right. you know, there yep. you have to be yep. convincing. Uh, it's a craft, and uh, and I respect it. So thank you. Oh, thanks for having me on, Eugene. And go check out Joe at the uh, Derby Library, Shelton Library, Trumbull Libraries, uh, and I'll record a post note uh, again giving the dates and times and how to register and all that good stuff. So, Joe, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Totally. Thank you. For hundreds of years we've brought you the news. For the info we gave you the clues. Profits were always sky high. Change in market now threatens our lives.